Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast where I cover a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. This particular episode will be um, talking about an idea that's become ever more uh, kind of prevalent in the last few years or so, which is that of fully automated luxury communism. More specifically, I'm going to be talking to Amber Stani, who you might be familiar with from Navarra Media, who has just released a book called Fully Automated Luxury Communism and Manifesto, which kind of tries to lay out um, some of the utopian trajectories we, we might follow towards uh, the state of fully automated luxury communism and where he kind of tries to make an argument about why the technologies and, and structures and systems that we need to realize such a state are, are kind of emerging now and and yeah it touches into various uh, aspects of, of what that might look like and how that comes about now we managed to touch on uh, every single aspect of the book but you know it goes through things like automation um solar power the potential of asteroid mining gene editing i think it's quite a, a bold book in some ways and is to where it suggests that it might uh that we could go but of course, this is a podcast about utopia and that I am definitely for uh, utopian visions that try and push push us in um, into territory that, that might seem impossible and to kind of challenge us to um, think about how we might get to these places. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we'll touch on uh, um, a few of those areas and um, yeah, it's a fun conversation. So just before we get to that, I can't remember if my last episode was out in time for this or not, but regardless, I didn't mention it. I was recently a guest on uh, No Cartridge, which is a, I suppose you could say, leftist um, video game podcast. And quite often there's not much talk about video games, but uh, it's still a fun listen. Um, and I went on there to talk about utopia and dystopia. So I thought it might be of interest to those of you listening to this. Um, so more specifically, I, was, I, went, I went on to talk about some of the, uh, what I consider the misconceptions about the differences between utopia and dystopia are, and uh, kind of you know, how I think we should see them in relation to each other. And we talk about a couple of um, video games examples of how these things might manifest. So yeah, if you're interested in that, then uh, Google no cartridge and um, should be able to find that episode with me on it. Okay, uh, don't think there's anything else I need to mention at this point. So I'll leave you now with my conversation with Aaron. Joining me now is Aaron Bastani. You may know him from his work with Novara Media, but um, the reason he's here to talk to me today is because of a, a new book that's just recently come out called Fully Automated Luxury Communism, A Manifesto. Um, thank you very much for joining me, Aaron. My pleasure. So just to start off, for people who have no idea what we're talking about when you say fully automated luxury communism, could mm. you could you please give us kind of a rough definition? I know you've kind of taken a, an opposite direction in, in the book where you've kind of started it analyzing today's context and yep. following those trends through to Falk, but I think it would be useful for people who have no yep. kind of starting point to know. Yeah, I mean, I, by uh, by virtue of your podcast, I'm sure many of your listeners probably already buy the idea that we live in a, in a moment of crisis. So that's that yep. probably makes sense. Uh, I think it's the third chapter 
basically says, what is fully automated luxury communism? It starts with the words, what is fully automated luxury communism? Why those words? Why in that sequence? Uh, and that's a good question. So firstly, it takes capitalism as being a contingent social system. It has a beginning, it has an end, just as feudalism had a beginning, had an end. And the, the sort of the core proposition is that uh, there is a successor si system to capitalism. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it's called communism. Now, the mainstream media sort of interpretation of that has been, well, you're just you're trying to provoke because obviously communism, it's a very provocative term. It's going to get people's backs up. But I try to make clear in the book when I say communism, it's because I'm building on a certain interpretation of capitalist development within Marx, where he basically says um, imminent within capitalist development is the potential liberation of human beings. And so capitalism creates the conditions for its own downfall. We see that in a range of areas. Uh, one is how technology minimizes human labor in production to a minimum. Another is what he would have called the crisis of the wage uh, labor relation, which is to say capitalism makes goods and services more and more efficiently uh, over time, requiring less and less labor. But that simultaneously means that humans lack the means to buy those goods and services. That creates what a Keynesian would call a crisis of underconsumption. And so I say that, yes, this is a moment of crisis, but that also we can see a raft of technologies, artificial intelligence, deep learning, robotics, renewable energy, synthetic biology, cellular agriculture, which I think mean that the next several decades really resemble the late 18th century, in so much as at that point we saw the convergence of a, a new set of ideas about how to run the economy, classical political economy, Adam Smith. You see the emergence of the steam engine as it becomes the backbone of the Industrial Revolution with Matthew Bolton and Watt. Uh, and you see a sort of a constellation of various factors which merge into what we now view as industrial capitalism. I think that system, because of the crises which the book starts with, is now drawing to an end. Uh, and that's not to say it will be replaced by something better. Uh, it could be replaced by something worse. That's down, of course, to politics. But what I say is that I think that the successor system is now on the horizon and that it has features which fundamentally attenuate the core uh, features of capitalism, which are um, production for profit and workers having to sell their labour for a wage. Mm -hmm. uh, could you explain what you mean? Because there's a, a line in the book where you say uh, communism is luxurious or it isn't communism. Because yeah. I think a lot of people, when they think of communism, they tend to have quite austere associations with it because of yeah. you know, some of the problems with obviously that happened in the, the Soviet version uh, yeah. of um, communism. So, yeah, could you explain a bit yeah, about so that? Yeah, so I think it's, pretty, it's, it's important to start with a definition of, of, of communism, or at least a delimitation of communism from socialism. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the sort of people, People's Republic of North Korea is an effort at implementing what Marx would have called socialism. He wouldn't have called it communism, I think, uh, looking at the, the works I cite. So what's the difference between socialism and communism? Well, socialism is, for Marx in Capital 3, fundamentally the same as capitalism in that there is scarcity, there is work. But what changes is the relations of working people to the means of production. They mm. now control the means of production or they exercise political control over the means of production. Uh, he says that communism is distinct from socialism in that it is not a change in the relationship to the means of production, but a new mode of production. That's a very different thing. So like I say, Feudalism is a mode of production. 
capitalism is a mode of production and communism for Marx is a mode of production. And communism has quite different features to socialism. So he insinuates that it's post-scarcity. He says that you have an end really to the division, the sort of the, the division of labor. There's the great quote about being a literary critic, a fisherman, etc., all in the same day. Uh, it's a condition under which we can um, investigate our species being. He talks about the end of any distinction between manual and cognitive labor, the end of any distinction between leisure and work. Now, you might think that's all pie in the sky. That's fine. He talk- that's, that's what he talks about when he talks about communism. And he's very clear that that's distinct to socialism. And the classical project of, of 20th century socialism was to seize the means of production, like I say, change the relationship of working class people to the means of production, and that, that that would transition to a new mode of production. So communism and socialism are two separate things. And when people go, oh, well, you're such a cliche quote unquote communism has never been tried you know i would answer well it's not a question of never been tried it's like trying to it's like trying to apply capitalism in, in 13th century england you know it's it's simply mm. not possible because the social relations the mental conceptions the technologies aren't there uh, and i use the analog of the protestant reformation you know there was a, a, a english heretic called john wycliffe who espoused many ideas that were similar to luther a century later but in the absence mm-hmm. of the printing press, the Reformation doesn't happen there. It happens in Germany in the 16th century with Luther. That doesn't mean I'm a technological determinist. It's just to say that the conditions weren't available for a Protestant Reformation in the 14th century or the 15th century like they were in the 16th century. And so I would say it's a similar, it's a similar situation for communism. You can't have the kind of uh, mode of production Marx talks about with hydrocarbons or with the absence of deep learning, etc., or in the absence of robotics. So communism is different to socialism. Now, in relation to the luxury point, uh, clearly under such conditions of post-scarcity, the idea of luxury itself is attenuated. Uh, so if you, if you think of luxury today as conspicuous consumption, what is conspicuous consumption? It's because a certain class of people uh, live in, in their own way an ether, which is, you know, you could say it resembles post-scarcity, right? They don't, when they buy something, they don't need to look at the price tag. Um, And that's not a consideration for them. Now, conspicuous consumption is basically a presentation of what Marx would call exchange value and saying, this is totally unrelated to use value. I don't even need it, but look how great I am. Look at my social status. I can just buy it anyway. Now, clearly under conditions of post-scarcity, that whole category collapses. The idea of conspicuous Mm -hmm. consumption, the idea of just unnecessary um, unnecessary exchange value doesn't doesn't make sense anymore. Uh, so let's think of a great example, and I can try and wind this down to a, you know a concrete sort of anecdote. What would that mean in the real world? Well, let's go back thirty five years. You've got Spotify on your mobile phone, and you go back to see your dad thirty five years ago or your mum, and they've got an amazing record collection. They've got thousands of records. They've got the biggest record collection in the world. They've got all the vinyl, all the cassettes, you know, just unreal. Every edition that they can think of. But you've got Spotify. Now, fundamentally, that gives you access to more music than they have anytime, any place. What's more, economists would call it a non-rivalrous good. You can consume as much of it as you like without meaning that somebody else can't consume it. That's not the case with the physical object. If you're using the LP, somebody else can't. Uh, and it's excludable because of capitalist social relations, which is to say you have to pay a fee. But it's not it's not rivalrous. Now, that is a great example of how 
development over time could abnegate ideas of luxury and ideas ideas of ownership as a form of status. You know, nobody thinks now owning a massive record collection is synonymous with um, with affluence. I mean, aficionados might want to do it, but it's not a, it's not a sort yeah. of widely held cultural theme. Uh, no. So that's basically what I mean when I say that communism really attenuates the category of luxury itself because of transformations just in the concept of ownership. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay. Um, so one of the, the kind of key things in the book is, is this idea of uh, kind of eras of uh, disruption. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wondered if you could um, talk us a bit through that. I mean, you say that we're, we're kind of at this point of a, a third disruption. Mm-hmm. So if you could explain what you mean by that and, and perhaps how that ties in with the kind of era of crisis that you're identifying at, the, at this point as well, you know, things, climate change, resource scarcity, and so on. Yeah, so I claim there are three disruptions. The first is 12,000 years ago, when we really see the beginning of, of human history with the Neolithic Revolution, the Agricultural Revolution. Now, when people say that, um, you, know, te- we, you know, technology won't fix the climate crisis, which is partially yeah. true. I mean, technology... Is part of a solution, obviously, as well as as well mm-hmm. as politics. Whatever that technology might be, it might be a, a technology whereby you know all of a sudden you choose to cycle rather than to use a car, but it's still a technology. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a first order technology. If you look at uh, the planet's population of human beings twelve thousand years ago, um, there were about five million people, and then you get the arrival of agriculture, domestication of animals. We understand how to breed in and out certain features to crops and livestock. And by about 1800, you get a billion people. So clearly something, even though we've been around and, you know, archaic humans who may have actually been far more similar to us than we realize have been around for hundreds of thousands of years, clearly something changes around 12,000 years ago. And our our brains, how we appear, we would have been very similar to humans preceding that moment. But in terms of our humanity, we would have shared very little with them. So after that rupture, after that technological kind of shift, you get... Um, Cities, culture, literacy, increasingly complex configurations of human beings, the creations of hierarchy, because there's the creation of surplus, you all of a sudden have ideas of um, economic distribution, social systems of consent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's all contingent on a certain disruption, I, I argue, in, in, uh, in the book, the first disruption. Mm-hmm. Second disruption is the Industrial Revolution, which takes place really in the final decades of the 18th century, early 19th century. Uh, and I suppose for for readers or for listeners, they would say, well, that's strange. You've got three disruptions. The first 12,000 years ago, which that makes sense. Most people agree that agriculture was a big deal. Um, but then you've got two sort of next to each other, 250 years apart. Now, in the book, I talk about Niccolo Machiavelli when he writes his discourses on Livy. Um, and Livy, of course, was a first century... Uh, AD Roman historian, very much recommended the histories of Rome. It's a good book. And uh, Machiavelli uh, wrote a book about the histories of Rome and what it meant for, you know, it was basically a handbook to running a a Renaissance Republic. Now, the world Machiavelli inhabited was very similar to that of Livy. The fastest way of getting from A to B was uh, by horse. The fastest way of sort of global transportation was by sailing ship. Uh, the best source of heat and light for Machiavelli or for Livy was fire. The cleanliness of the water that they would have been drinking would have been comparable, if anything. Um, first century AD, Rome had you know cleaner drinking water than Florence in the in the early sixteenth century. So broadly speaking, these these are quite similar 
worlds. You get the printing mm-hmm. press emerging before Machiavelli, but it's not yet become a really mainstream technology. And clearly there are other things like, for instance, the 11th century sees an energy revolution with something of an energy revolution with water mills and windmills, etc. But broadly speaking, these are quite similar quite similar mental universes. And what I say is that really you don't, and, and, and reflective of that is the fact that, think, consider this, the Rome of Livy's time was a million people, the Florence of Machiavelli's time is about 50,000. And Europe doesn't get a city of a million people again until London, Paris in the 19th century. So, mm-hmm. well, 18th, 19th centuries. So it, it's fair to say that this is you know quite a, quite a seismic um, sort of, decline that we see after Rome. And basically, the success of a society wasn't contingent on its technological base, but more uh, circumstance, political leadership, etc, etc. So that's the first, the second disruption. And to sort of convey how much changed and how quickly with the second disruption I talk about, and it's a great book by Eric Hobsbawm, The Age of Capital. uh, And I use the anecdote of Phileas Fogg. Um, and you know Jules Jules Verne's traveling hero around the world in 80 days, the same trip a generation earlier would have taken a year. So in mm. the mid-19th century, with the arrival of the steam engine, the steamboat, telegrams, um, you see what David Harvey would call or what sort of globalization scholars call globalization as a time-space compression, right? which is dif- distinct to globalization as, a, as, a, as an orthodoxy or a sort of economic, um, an economic regime. So that's the second disruption, and it, it changes a lot. Um, and we see a relative, what's called the first machine age by certain scholars in the field, because we see a, a certain um, post-scarcity in physical labor. This serves through a few things. It means that all of a sudden, far fewer people can work the land in agriculture. At the same time, we see far fewer famines. So for instance, in the 17th century, about 70% of people would have been working um, in uh, agriculture in Europe. Some countries higher than others. England and, and the Netherlands quite low. Poland quite high, but consistently around sort of fifty percent plus. Mm-hmm. Clearly, after the Industrial Revolution, that falls. Today, I think the highest employer of agricultural labour in the EU is Italy. I think it's about five percent. Britain's two percent. The US is one percent. So clearly, something changes there, uh, and labour's reallocated in other places. And the whole experience of work generally. Uh, generally speaking, now clearly very physically demanding jobs still, um, mm. but generally speaking is less about physical exertion. Uh, so the steamboat, like I say, replaces wind, but also the idea of you know humans having to physically row things around. Going from A to B no longer requires a barge with a with a horse. Uh, mm. You can do it increasingly by rail, etc. So physical labour is increasingly less significant as a variable in the economy. And this is this is reflected in something I call peak horse. You know, you look yeah. at the amount of horses in the US economy, it actually peaks surprisingly in the early 20th century, but then it just sort of falls off a cliff. Mm-hmm. And what I argue with the third disruption is that we're seeing a similar trend with moves away from the centrality of cognitive labor, uh, just as we did with physical in the in the in the second disruption. So deep learning, big data, um, neural networks, potentially even the arrival of a general artificial intelligence is, you know, plural, um, would uh, really be analogous to the steam engine in terms of what it would mean to disrupting the modern economy. So just as uh, people who depended on selling physical labor increasingly struggled over the last 150 years, really, you know, that wasn't really enough to earn a wage anymore. Uh, it will be very similar 
with people whose jobs are effectively repetitive. Anything which is repetitive can be can be automated. It appears, uh, and that ranges from radiology. We see that already to uh, law to you know pretty pretty much anything accountancy and there's a great quote by mark cuban who's a sort of billionaire talk about him in the book uh owner of the dallas mavericks and he said he'd rather his his kids learn philosophy than um than accountancy because that's the that's the next wave of what's going to be automated Mm. um can i i was gonna i was gonna ask you about automation later but as we're on the subject um could you could you talk a bit about because i think a lot of people uh, are familiar with the idea of automation in, you know, factories and things <laughs> yeah. like that. People are people are conscious that that's a thing, and they're fairly adjusted to that mm-hmm. being an idea, and they can believe that things like that can further be automated. Yeah. Um, I think people are a lot more um, aren't aware, I should say, of mm-hmm. of how much progress there is around. Um, other kinds of labor you mentioned there, like radiologist, uh, legal services. Mm. Uh, I think people are more, a lot more skeptical about the potential of, of being, uh, those things being uh, automated. Yep. Um, should they be far less skeptical about this, th- these things? Well, the evidence suggests as much. Um, you know, the, the data I draw on is from the Bank of England, Congress, um, you know, various consultancies, the United Nations. And, you know, we, we need to, I agree that anything which is as profound as this, you know, I'm, I'm not saying in the book, every job's going to go. What I am saying is we've got a range of scenarios. And I think the most conservative scenario is that the market for uniquely human skills shrinks. Now, what does that serve to do? This is the, this is the you know, the least change scenario, right? Mm-hmm. This is almost business as usual, or as close to business as usual as we can reasonably anticipate. What would that mean? It means that anybody who sees their, their, skills effectively being automated we've talked about accountancy etc um we'll see a downward pressure on wages meanwhile those those areas which can't uh, be automated and it might not be the whole job or profession it might just mean tasks you know it might not be that you can automate say a footballer you know it's gonna it clearly that's beyond automation so uh those areas and obviously it goes beyond just football i'm talking about many 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 areas you know if you're in silicon valley they say well you can't automate entrepreneurship or whatever who knows I, I suspect you probably could automate quite a lot of it. But anyway, um, those professions will see the wage, the price that they can command for their labor increase, right? So uniquely human skills uh, shrinks. Uh, those which are still only capable of being performed by humans see their wages go up. They become more valuable. Those who don't see their labor become less valuable. So most conservative sort of outcome here is massively increased inequality massively increase in equality mm. alongside clearly some kind of increase in un- 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 underemployment. So Greece today has unemployment of around 25%. You know, and that's that's perfectly plausible as I think a global scenario by the midpoint of this century. And what's most concerning, and again, it's really underestimated, is if you look at the, the global trajectory of development, it's changing quite significantly with automation. So 30 years ago, 40 years ago, jobs were going from Western Europe, North America, uh, to Taiwan, Japan, 
China, less Japan, it all developed by then, South Korea, East Asia generally. And until a decade ago, people have said, well, when the wages in those countries are too high, capital again will reallocate to Indonesia, Nigeria, Pakistan, etc. And the exact same process will happen. What we're seeing instead is that the jobs in these countries aren't being subject to the spatial fix. They're not moving elsewhere, but they're just being automated. That's most clearly obvious in China, uh, which is the world's number one importer of industrial robots. I think right now China has more industrial robots than the rest of the world put together. So that has massive implications for a country like Nigeria, which already has a huge population, you know, a couple of hundred million people, could could see that double over the course of you know the 21st century. One of the most populous countries on the face of the earth with climate change, with declining crop yields, with all the attendant problems that has, but at the same time it doesn't benefit benefit from the, the sort of the developmental trajectory in a way that China did or South Korea did or Taiwan did. So I, I think global prospects for unemployment being around 25% is actually is again, like I say, pretty conservative. And that's alongside massive inequality in the global north. So people should be concerned, but that doesn't need need to say that doesn't mean to say that we need to be Jeremiah's about it and say, oh, you know, there'll be no jobs left. You know, think things can change only marginally to have quite a massive impact on, you know, political volatility of of democracies, for instance. I, I that would be my argument. You know, countries like Britain or France can't really survive with say fifteen percent unemployment, generally speaking. So. Uh, I don't think we should be laid back about it. And that's before we get on to the, you know, the sort of worst case scenarios of general artificial intelligence, et cetera, which, which poses massive questions, not just for unemployment, underemployment, but again, inequality, you know, who has access to AI? And this is now a question that's being posed by, by people in Silicon Valley. But for them, it's just a sort of interesting quandary because they're billionaires. You know, Elon Musk often <laughs> refers to a book by a guy called Nick Bostrom called Superintelligence. And he sort of goes off in these weird meandering, you know, speculations about is this all a sort of computer game we're in or something, which, you know, that's that's interesting. Fine. But it's a good book, by the way, Superintelligence. Uh, but access to AI, just as access to synthetic biology, um, you know, th- this could massively, massively um, undermine the idea of a, a quote unquote fair labor market. Mm. OK, um, so I wanted to, to, to touch on some other um kind of uh, trajectories where you, where you think this this might be leaning us, this um, third disruption of crises. But before we do that, I just want to ask you specifically about utopianism and what role that plays for you in in this book and your approach to politics more yeah. generally. Um, because, I mean, for, correct me if I'm wrong, but me reading the book, it feels to me like you would think of yourself as a utopian or like conscious of, of the value yeah. of that. Yeah, that's fair, I think. Um, so yeah, a few things. When Thomas, as I'm sure you're aware, that given the nature of this podcast, when uh, Thomas More was writing Utopia, scholarship in the area says that one of the reasons he wrote Utopia is to highlight the shortcomings of England as it actually existed, how poorly it was administered, mm-hmm. etc. So Utopias serve a few purposes. And while people often think of them as being sort of a template for a different kind of world, short of that, they also serve to highlight um, present shortcomings, which I hope this book does, because you can look at the technology around you, you can look at Amazon Go, you can look at uh, people, for instance, in Dubai, there are now um, air taxis, drones, which people will be flying from A to B and Uber for the, for the, for the ultra rich, you know, 
those air taxis are contingent on the exact same technologies I talk about in the book that would make possible uh, free universal bus services, ultra cheap lithium ion batteries, automation, declining costs of energy uh, year on year, extreme supply because of renewables. So at the very least, I'd want them to look at the book and have that as a weapon where they could say, well, we've got this, but we don't have to. There are alternatives. Now, like I say, this isn't just a blueprint. Marx was very reticent to write blueprints. He said, I'm not here to write recipes for the cookshops of the future. And, you know, I've, I've demurred from doing that. So I have a set of propositions which I think offer a break with neoliberalism. And I think the utopianism really is in the rest of the book. When you actually get to the final core proposals at the end, the final third of the book, it's far from utopian. So it's universal basic services, it's socialising finance, growth of the worker-owned economy, um, uh, climate transition, which isn't just a revolution in how we produce energy, but in who owns it. So, yeah, the utopianism is really to highlight uh, present shortcomings. Um, but also, you know, the technology is available to us. There's a great quote once. I did a podcast with a, a woman called Hannah Black, and she said, people say that it's the future that's too complex to understand, but actually it's the present. And I think that's true. We live in a moment of such complex production that people don't quite understand what's going on most of the time. All the technology is available to us. Uh, and so I, I, I do want that debate about how else would we want to use these, these technologies. You know, gene editing is one, for instance. On the one hand, what could it do? You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a technological determinist, nor do I think technology is even neutral. You know, it's clearly subject to, to, to politics. Yeah. Gene editing could mean that the the ultra rich change their genomes to all be six foot five and ultra clever and, you know, gorgeous to look at. That that could happen. We could have biological inequality map onto economic inequality. Uh, I suspect that's going to happen on the sly under the radar, you know, probably first in China, but in many countries over the coming years. And that presents a, a real problem, right? Because then we're, we're moving from kind of, um, artificial structures of superiority yep. where you know people kind of create an ideological framework which yep. suggests they're um, superior to actually being able to buy superiority in yep. some sense. Well, yeah, I mean, the whole idea, for instance, of nobility until the Renaissance, the idea of nobility was basically, it was blood, you know? Mm. And then in, the, in Renaissance humanism, they basically start saying Petrarch and Machiavelli and... Um, who was the person that wrote the panegyric to Florence? I think it's Leonardo Bruni. Leonardo Bruni, basically, he's the he's the he's the capo of the Republic of Florence, the the Gonfalconiere. And he says right. anybody who has virtue can govern the Republic, right? Which is like a revolutionary idea because until then, and I, I you know people really do sort of not think about this enough. I think, yeah, you have it in antiquity a little bit with Greece and Rome, but until then, broadly speaking. You know, people ruled because of blood. And there was this literal belief that they had different blood to the rest of us. You know, the idea of blue blood, for instance. Mm. Um, they were biologically distinct to the rest of us. And what changes with the with the Renaissance is that actually the idea that no, that's not true. Humans are perfectible. They're made in the image of God, which means they can attain certain, you know, characteristics and virtues which they're not necessarily born with, et cetera, et cetera. So, like you say, what this technology permits is you know, finally, this dream of having blue blood sort of coming true. Uh, but on the other hand, if you look, if you were a if you were a billionaire in China, and your GP is saying, "Well, look, there's a thirty five percent chance you'll have Parkinson's," we can mm. tell that from looking at your genome. We can do this to your kid, which means they have a five percent chance of having Parkinson's. I mean, you can understand why people would do it, and that's yeah, sure. what I, that's that's what I think. 
that's how I think it will start. You know, it will start by oh, we can change these single nucleotides, Parkinson's or cystic fibrosis. Oh, we can make you resistant to certain forms of influenza. Oh, we can make you a couple of inches taller. You know, so I, I can see how that happens quite quite sharply, actually, mm. uh, and it wouldn't be subject to government scrutiny. So, what's the alternative? Well, with socialized medicine, uh, you would say with, within a democratic conversation, you'd say, well. Uh, gene editing synthetic biology should mean that we, like I say, eradicate uh, X, Y, Z conditions, much like we did with smallpox in the in the 20th century. So that, that those are the alternatives to us. And I think most people don't realize that these are, these are technologies which are already here. So I talk about in 2017, a guy called David Ishi, a dog breeder, has had bred Dalmatians. Dalmatians tend to get gout. Uh, he writes the US FDA. Uh, and he says, look, I want to, he's also a biohacker. He says, I want to just change this nucleotide in my Dalmatians so they don't have gout. And the FDA writes back, they don't actually write back even, they do a press release. And they say, we're treating um, edited DNA like uh, patented pharmaceutical drugs. So it's perfectly possible that in a world where you have an ultra, no, it might be an ultra cheap technology to edit somebody's DNA so their children don't have uh, sickle cell, for instance, mm. it's perfectly possible that, that is patented by a company and made incredibly expensive. Now, somebody might be listening to that and go, "Well, that's ridiculous." Well, what do you think pharmaceuticals are? You know, it's the exact yeah, sure. it's the exact same thing. It's just far less glaring. You know, it's far less obvious. Uh, so, you know, that's why that's why in the, in, the, in the book I talk about the UBS of healthcare because we can't allow those kinds of technologies to be subject to uh, the profit motive because the, the potentially you know the the socially useful potentials within them are just um, incredible, and we should we should be optimistic about the potentials. We shouldn't be optimistic about the the, the political and economic system within which they are unfolding. Mm. And yeah, I think yeah, the pharmaceuticals is a really. I mean, when people, especially living where we do, when you see uh, what people have to deal with in America mm. um, in terms of the prices, that really shows you how. Yeah, that, that's an important part of the, the book and, and something we'll perhaps talk about a bit later I don't know but obviously these um, the important thing is how these technology which political system these technologies exist within mm-hmm. uh, and that kind of informs how they how they come out to the point that yeah if you cross the border from America into Canada then your the kind of healthcare that you can access and what that means for you is very very different suddenly yeah, um, yeah I think that also I think that's one of the one of the useful things about the book, I, I think there are a lot of things like this, when we're talking about all this stuff, about editing genes and stuff, um, as you said, that can sound very kind of, you know, uh, kind of, you know, ridiculous speculation. But mm. but um, one of the things that the, the book brings out, I think, is how surprisingly far ahead some of these things are. And yep. this is, yeah, DNA was one of the things that I was very, really surprised about just what is already possible uh so the, these things c- could kind of sneak up on us quite quickly if we don't yeah well i mean I, I mean the thing is right now so right now there are two there are two areas where you're sort of seeing sputnik 2.0 between you know again it's not really meant not really, we're in the eu we're in europe europe is not at the races with these technologies right one is artificial intelligence one is synthetic biology which which we've just been talking about specifically a a, a technology or a technique called crispr cas9 you know and you can people can sort of Google and they can get, you know, newsletters, et cetera, about CRISPR-Cas9. There's all kinds of stories that, you know, sort of unscrupulous experiments being done in China with very little regulation. 
they can do those things. And to a lesser extent, the US and obviously EU can't really do those things. You'll hear stories about, for instance, people with terminal lung cancer. Stem cells are removed. They edit a stem cell. They re-inject it back into them. Now, I, I'm not I'm not a, you know, I'm not a synthetic biologist. I have no idea if that will work. But the, point, but the point is, and they're not subject to peer review often, right? But the point is, and so we don't know what's true and what isn't. But the point is, you know, these experiments, they are happening. Um, and if you look at um, CRISPR-Cas9, one of the sort of people can buy these kits online to edit organisms. And a very simple one is, for yeah, instance... that's insane. That, that's insane. I yeah, it's it crazy, crazy, right? And kids in the US, you know, they'll be editing um, bacteria to make them glow in the dark. And and 30 years ago, that was winning a Nobel Prize. Today, you know, it's a 14-year-old kid can do that. And it's not that dissimilar to what, you know, a geek in the 80s building their own computer would have been doing. So, you know, just as they would have been mucking around with an OS and coding, etc., a similar undertaking now for a highly intelligent young person would be to, you know, edit um a living organism you know it's it's really not it's not something we need to think about in 10 20 years because if we start regulating this stuff in in 2030 it's going to be too late um which is why you know the book is very much a call to arms to the left and trying to get ahead of the curve hello it's me again just dropping in to interrupt this conversation very briefly to say that if you've been enjoying this episode and the podcast in general and you'd like to help to support me to keep doing this i'd really appreciate it if you could check out patreon.com slash utopian horizons if you sign up to support me on there you can get access to regular extra bonus episodes that cover a whole host of stuff related to utopia and dystopia i've got some episodes for example working my way through mark fisher's capitalist realism as if you're on video games, looking at Not Tonight and the way it approaches Brexit, Red Dead Redemption 2 and Intentional Communities. I've got one I recently did covering Kim Stanley Robertson's essay, Dystopias Now, episodes on the uh, anime series Psychopaths, and all sorts of other cool things. So yeah, feel free to check that out and see if there's anything that interests you. One more final thing, ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, wherever you happen to be listening to this, are really helpful in terms of helping more people to see the podcast and they're just nice for me to see so if you if this is something you've been enjoying and you could take a quick moment to give me a review that would be very much appreciated as well okay that's enough for me i will drop you back into the conversation now cheers i've already asked you about utopianism i also wanted to ask you about anti-utopianism which mm. is something that you talked about because it feels to me like this is something that's really important uh, at this moment. One of the, the lines you have in the book is uh, you say about the big, biggest crisis of all is the absence of collective imagination. Yeah. So, yeah, I just wondered, wondered if you'd give us your thoughts on how significant that is, like this kind of mental barrier that we have, or ideological barrier, I should perhaps say, to the idea of change in, in any kind of form. That feels like almost, even though some of the technology you're talking about in this book seems like, is so far in the future and crazy it feels like almost that might be a, a bigger challenge at the moment yeah i think that's true i mean it's not it's not a new it's not a new problem either um for instance if you look at some of the critiques of technological change by marxists in the 50s you know adorno and horkheimer talked about consumer capitalism and so on and i think they have quite a bad understanding of, of technology within a marxist framework but for them the avatars of capitalism were you know coca-cola general motors etc now, what was capitalism doing at the exact same? And these were the finest Marxist minds in, in the West. Now, what was capitalism doing at the exact same time? Bell Labs was developing photovoltaic cells, the transistor. Um, later down the road, you get the microprocessor. 
DNA was being modeled around the t- same time, 5758. Uh, so it's not it's not a new claim to say that the, the biggest crisis is a crisis of imagination, you know, uh, and the left hasn't really been engaged with these questions properly for a very long time. You know, for the late 19th century, early 20th century, leftists were very much the cutting edge of technological change. Einstein even, um, you know, I, I always... I always think of the 20th century's two most famous but broadly unknown communists were Einstein and Charlie Chaplin. Mm. But uh, over time, you know, that that became less of a concern. Uh, And the idea of repurposing actually existing technologies to socially useful ends became less a part of sort of Marxist or or left-wing or even just progressive thinking. So that's absolutely right. And I think increasingly that merged, particularly after the collapse of the Soviet Union, with, like say, an anti-utopianism, a prevailing anti-utopianism which basically says, you know, any any break with the status quo is equivalent to Stalinism. Um, mm-hmm. And there's there's great, you know, there's great quotes about this from Badiou or from Zizek or from Mark Fisher. Uh, mm. And, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure we're very acquainted with this. And actually an interesting subgenus of anti-utopianism is, is what um, Enzo Traverso calls anti-anti-fascism, um, right. which isn't a defense of fascism. It's just, a, you know, it's anti anti-fascism. Uh, which, you know, arguably effectively coterminous. They're basically the same thing, which is to say, I'm not an anti-fascist, but I'm not a fascist either. And that's to sort of diminish and forget the the legacy of anti-fascism in, in, in Italy, Spain, France, Germany. The base of post-war democracy in many of these countries was literally built by communist anti-fascists. Uh, but that, that's conveniently forgotten because, because of this anti-utopian sort of zeitgeist. Uh, and I think increasingly it, it doesn't make any sense. So, you know, on the left, you could say we need a, a socially owned um, payment system so that we can anonymize people's data and use it for neural networks to socially useful ends and automate increasingly large parts of the economy. You know, now, if you say that to somebody in Silicon Valley, they might disagree, but they would say, hmm, that's an interesting proposition, right? Mm. Whereas an ideologue that works the Conservative Party will just say, how could you hate capitalism? You just, you just wrote that on an iPad, right? <laughs> yeah. No, no I, just, I, just don't, I just don't think that's, that's going to be a significant defense for much longer. You know, it's, it has been for about 25 years, 30 years. Um, but that, that anti-utopianism, I think, is it's kind of beginning to wear thin, especially, and also, you know, it was, it was predicated on, on Western supremacy. But when China starts developing, and, you know, this is now happening, when China starts developing technologies we don't have, um, I think it's going to be a hard thing for Western elites to sort of, uh, and that's what the whole um, Huawei saga is all about. You know, China, 20 years ago, China's idea of technological innovation was just copying Facebook and, and, and Twitter, you know, literally pixel for pixel. Mm. And they were and Silicon Valley sort of laughed at them, right? They were just it was a rip-off economy. It was about, you know, fake Fendi handbags and fake social media sites, but just with Mandarin Chinese instead of English. That's mm. now changed. Uh and so that broader you know, do we want a country which is highly authoritarian, which doesn't have a respect for human rights? Um, the regime, that is to say, obviously there's a there's a history of all of these things in China just as well are anywhere else. Um, do we want that kind of country to exercise a monopoly over the, these transformational technologies? I, I would argue we shouldn't, you know. Um, so I, I think the anti-utopianism thing was really contingent on a historical moment, you know, the end of history. 
the utter ideological but also economic supremacy of the West. You know, th- those things are now part of that more general crisis and disorder I talk about. So I don't think it will pertain for much longer. I hope so. Um, <laughs> important to a lot of the things that you talk about in the book is energy. Yeah, um, that's going to be required. Like, and you uh, focusing on the, on in particular solar. Yeah. Um, I wondered if you could talk us through that because I found so when we're thinking about the uh, climate crisis that we're facing, it can be quite. It can be easy to kind of become paralysed, and because you know the, the challenge looks so huge, and it's hard to find points of optimism. Uh, as you say, you know, you're not a technological determinist. I think it's important not to be so. Yeah. Even so, I found reading this, 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 um, uh, what you wrote about solar in the book to be a real cause for optimism and the mm. example of where we can, you know, look for for places that we can go. So, so could you could you um, talk us through how how you see solar panning out um, and why? So there's a real potential for us to to you know completely have effectively free energy. Yeah. Um... I mean, solar can meet most of the world's energy demands. There are some exceptions. So, for instance, um, uh, Russia, Canada, maybe Britain, maybe Northern Europe, although I'm actually quite optimistic even about those places. Now, why is that? Firstly, they get less solar exposure, although it's important to say PV cells actually function better in colder temperatures. They're more energy efficient. Uh, they get less solar exposure, they're colder, and they also have longer winters. So the issue of intermittency, which is you don't have exposure to the sun, you have storage bottlenecks, etc. Combined with cold weather, clearly it's going to be harder for some places to transition to solar than others. That said, I think about 80% of the world's population lives in high solar exposure areas. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a few, I think the one example of a country which is warm but couldn't entirely transition is Bangladesh, just because it's such a massive population with quite a small surface area. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, almost all of the world's population could uh, get its energy from solar within a generation. Now, who would own that energy? Who would benefit? Whose interests would be served by that transition as a political question? But mm. I think without any shadow of a doubt, we, we will transition to entirely renewables this century. The problem from a perspective of climate change is that needs to really happen before 2050. You know, we can't mm. have... We can't have 85% of energy being met from renewables in this country in 21, you know, 2100 or something. It's just ridiculous. The global north, because it obviously has far easier access to finance and capital and research and development and skills, the global north needs to decarbonize, I say in the book, by 2030, the global south by 2040. Um, the global south decarbonizing would be partially paid for through uh, the World Bank. John McDonald's just called for reforms to the World Bank and the imposition of a, a global CO2 tax. Um, so... The technology is there, and that's before we sort of get the next technology up from photovoltaic cells and lithium-ion batteries, and the potential is there. So enough sun hits the planet's surface every 90 minutes to meet global demand for an entire year. And I like to use the metaphor of uh, a tree. So the tree has always been there. It's always been replete with food. It would have you know, fed all of us, but the point was we couldn't reach it, and we were just sort of picking at the berries at the at the bottom, which is hydrocarbons, which are effectively condensed forms of solar energy. And they're far more powerful than solar, but they're also far less abundant. And obviously, they're scarce. They're ultimately a limited resource. So there is enough solar for us to completely transition. And even if we double energy consumption in the next 35 years, which I suspect we will because of the global south, uh, more than enough solar exists for us to, to, to meet that demand. In colder countries, we would use wind. Now, where are the problems? One of the problems is in storage. 
But interestingly enough, the exact same uh, tendency falling costs since the late 1950s with photovoltaic cells, the exact same fall is evident with storage, with lithium-ion batteries, also with wind turbine technology. Uh, and why are they falling? They're falling because of something called the experience curve, which is to say whenever you double the production of a manufactured good, the price falls by between 10 to 20%. Now, given renewable energy is only around 2 3% of the global energy mix, it's fair to say that the price has got a long way to continue to fall. Now, the sort of counter, so we can transition. Right now, the counter arguments are well, renewables uh, require scarce resources, which is true. Mm. Um, there will be certain scarce resources, even under fully automated electric communism. One is land, for instance. We can't just create more land. Although, the Economist wrote a piece recently, a few weeks ago, uh, which cited fully automated electric communism and said, "Well, when we can exploit space, we'll have post scarcity and that resource as well." I mean, I don't go quite that far in the book. Uh, but in regards to resources, even again being very conservative, there is enough lithium for us to completely transition to lithium-ion batteries and double world energy production. But we'd have to constantly recycle it. So that's worst case scenario. Mm. Um, that's worst case scenario. I suspect we'll have we'll have a superior technology come online to lithium-ion batteries, or they'll become you know far far or at the same time they'll be becoming far far more efficient as well as much cheaper. So I'm very optimistic about energy transition. Whether or not you agree about the conclusion of fully automated electric communism or a form of radical social democracy, or even if you believe in defending market capitalism, but you know, say, well, we need to transition away from hydrocarbons as quickly as possible. I'm perfectly happy for energy to not be part of more broadly of a capitalist economy. That can that can happen very, very, very quickly. And what a Green New Deal does is it accelerates the experience curve with lithium-ion batteries, solar cells, wind turbines to make the price fall even more quickly. So it creates something of a virtuous cycle. Uh, so there are reasons to be very optimistic around, around energy product, production. I think today, we're recording this on the Friday, I hope you don't mind saying that. I think today there was some news out about, um, about the so far this year, I think the number one source of UK energy so far has been has been renewables or it's, it's getting that way or we're going to hit there by 2020. So already in the UK, you know, there's massive, massive changes afoot. If you go to, you know, you Google national grid real time, you can see the energy mix in real time of what's going on. On a hot day, people will be stunned by the amount of energy that's coming from solar. On a windy day, you'll be stunned by how much is coming from wind. And that's in a country where we've not really had a strategy on renewables, I would argue. And the one we did has been sort of systematically dismantled by the Tories and the Lib Dems over the last nine years. So, you know, think about what we could do if we start socialising the financing of this stuff and have that yeah. Green New Deal. Yeah, I think I think you, you, there's a stat in the book which surprised me. It, you, you said the UK had uh, about two um, percent of energy from renewables in 2010, and it was 25 percent by late 2018. And as you said, that's with a government that's not particularly invested in kind of the the idea of taking radical steps to avert climate change so if we can make that kind of progress in that kind of context then it seems i think as well you said scotland's scotland's on course to be uh have its energy completely provided by electricity 20 uh, electricity sorry by 2020 Um, so next year by 2020 yeah so that's that really surprised me that yeah the, the progress there is already a lot further than many people would know i think um, you see, you said as well that um, that, you, that you could see this as being a way of addressing inequality in the global south. 
Yeah, I'm just getting, I'm just getting this thing up. I saw the zero carbon energy to power majority of UK's electricity generation for first time. So, I mean, that's and that's that's happening now. Um, oh, okay, yeah. And that's on the, that's at the independent. I, I also think it could help challenge inequality. So, firstly, what 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 could it help us do this transition? I say it. We should call it the green industrial revolution, not just because it's a revolution in energy production, but also. Um, the relationship we own to that production. So if we socialize finance, uh, basically we can say, well, look, uh, your town, your village, your high street, your business, your school, your municipality, whatever, we want you guys to own this energy um, or, or, or the productive source, whether it's PV or whether it's wind. Uh, and that's financed, like I say, through uh, National Investment Bank, Green National Investment Bank, and the energy that you're producing through that is cheaper already than fossil fuels. So it's great regardless, undercuts mm-hmm. the big six. Uh, it massively accelerates uh, decarbonization. And like I say, um, it can be it could be municipally owned, it could be socially owned. You know, if you have a worker-owned business, you get the £30,000 loan from the National Investment Bank at 0% interest, or maybe it would just be a grant or a mix of the, of the two. Uh, you'd have cheaper energy bills, and any, you know, even if it wasn't, I think I argue in the book, it'd be marginally above 0% interest just to basically further finance rollout of, of um, green technologies. That would do a few things. So like I say, it would um, transform the relationship of ownership, but also if the, and I think it should be the priority, uh, heat energy uses far more than electricity, for instance, right? So the electricity numbers are good, uh, but in a cold country like Britain, especially in winter, obviously, we spend far more energy on on heating than we do on electricity. Mm. However, uh, retrofitting homes uh, is relatively straightforward, doesn't require some you know massive technology, which we don't have yet. We've known how to build basically zero carbon housing, which is cold in summer, uh, warm in winter since the 1970s. Listeners can Google the, pass- the idea of the passive house. Mm. So... The argument in the book is that the state should really be uh, retrofitting as many homes as possible, starting with with the poor, so and the vulnerable, and the elderly. So I think in this country, I don't know about the statistics for last winter in Britain. Pretty much every winter, we get thirty, forty thousand excess deaths, which is basically it's old mm. people who are living in fuel poverty who die of the cold, mm. uh, which is just you know it's remarkable 30 40,000 people same with air mm. pollution you know there's one estimate upper estimate says 35,000 people die every year in Britain from air pollution you know you're looking at between the two 60 70,000 people very avoidable deaths yeah. um so uh, the first thing you do is you can really um get rid of fuel poverty you can get rid of the excess deaths for instance in somewhere like Britain but beyond that on a more global scale the leading causes of death or not leading among the leading causes of death in some places are still respiratory issues, particularly in the global South. And that's because people are using biofuels for heating and for cooking indoors. This, this is, you know, creates huge respiratory problems. So transitioning to uh, renewables benefits poor people, both, both in the global North and the global South. Uh, and when you think about, for instance, the absence of electricity, even in places like Nigeria, I think about 50% of people in Nigeria don't have access to electricity. You're more likely to have a mobile phone than have access to electricity in Nigeria. You know, consider being a woman who goes into into labor in, at midnight, you know, and the sun's not going to rise for another five, six hours. Electricity is a really useful thing. Mm. Um, so I, I say that that argument and another criticism of the book from people who haven't read it, and that's, you know, it's fine to criticize something you haven't read. One of the great things about taking so long to write a book is you can internalize potential criticisms. Um, <laughs> one of the great things we can do in the global north is to pay for the transition 
to renewables in the global south and allow for a level of technological catch-up in, in quite a short period of time, sort of leapfrogging. Mm. Um, and an, an analogue to that is the rollout of mobile telephony in the, in, the, in the global south over the last 20 years. Or again, we can go to China. China, the, the idea of the internet in China isn't sitting at a computer and typing on a, on a computer, you know, like it is for many of us in, in, in the West. The internet in China is inherently mobile. It's about the mobile mm. internet. And now, in 2019... You know, they're far more comfortable with mobile payment systems than than we are, far more. Uh, so a, a similar leapfrogging could happen with renewables uh, in high solar exposure countries with presently low GDP. Mm, cool. Okay, one one final question. Um, what is the, the role of politics here? Because um, I think it's important. There can be a tendency when you're kind of following these technological technological trends to kind of assume that we're just inevitably heading somewhere. So yeah. Yeah, what's the role of politics there? And, and what kind of, um, connected to that, what kind of steps do you think we need We need to kind of start taking now to, to lay the groundwork for yeah. a fully automated luxury communism world that you'd like to see? Yeah, I mean, I, I talk about in the book how each sort of political tradition so I view history as composed of an ensemble of factors, mental conceptions, relations to nature, production, daily life, technology. And these are all, you know, they're all impacting and shaping one another in real time. And each political tradi- tradition, I would argue, fetishizes one of these fields. So an anarchist would say, look, we just need to have the social relations sorted, then everything's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, um, a classical Marxist Leninist would say, look, we need to class struggle and we need to do this. You know, it's about workers workers owning the means of production and everything's fine. Well, no, not if it lives within, you know, the ecological biocapacity of the planet. Uh, mm-hmm. Not without changed ideas of our relationships to nature. Uh, uh, techno-determinists would say, look, we don't need politics. We don't need the social relations because technology will sort it all out. And the point is, they're all wrong. Um, a meaningful mm-hmm. politics has to encompass all of these things. And you're right, I'm I'm very optimistic about human ingenuity. That's very different to technology. And my argument in the book, really, I think, is that human ingenuity is actually being held back by capitalism. And technology is just an expression of of human ingenuity. You know, we need it, we need a we need a systems change. And I've I've heard the most ridiculous stories in the last couple of months, years. People who get radicalized around green politics and then stop hoovering their house, you know. Right. That's not what that's not what we need. Or they stop buying balloons for their kids' birthday party, you know. Which, yeah. by the way, balloons made out of latex; they're recyclable, you know. And then, I, and I'm thinking, how how have we got a conversation around this where there is such a, poor, a poverty of ambition around um, around what we're doing? So, I, I don't view myself as a technological determinist, but if I'm optimistic about human ingenuity, good, you know. That I hope that serves as a remedy to what I think is a tendency to go too far the other way. Mm-hmm. And, and what about the, the the kind of steps that you you see as being the kind of uh, laying the groundwork for where we need to go from here? Yeah, so the the final three chapters talk about um, the, those next steps. Uh, I think there's one review. It's quite funny. It's sort of Aaron Bastani goes through all these zany technologies, and then his political answer is Corbynism. I mean, I, I wouldn't call it Corbynism. I'd, I'd say it's radically. It's a radically left variant of Corbynism, which we, you know, mm-hmm. obviously Jeremy Corbyn's not the prime minister, so I don't know. 
um, you know, removing education, healthcare, housing, transport from commodity circulation. I don't think it's Corbynism. The idea of no, I don't think that's been uh, proposed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when it when it is great, you know. Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, yeah. So, for instance, you know, uh, free local bus services, which are electric, universally available to all. The point of extreme supply is that the, the cost of doing that's getting cheaper and cheaper all the time. I wrote about this on uh, my website, luxurycommunism.com. Um, so the UBS is an important thing to pursue. Uh, the National Investment Bank to finance transitions. Universal import- basic services, yeah, right? Yeah, universal basic services. These things fundamentally human rights. They shouldn't be commodities for profit. Um, they allow us to flourish as individuals to be who we wish to be. Uh, national investment banks and the expansion of worker ownership through the Preston model, so municipal socialism. Now, how do we achieve that? No, those are a set of objectives or ambitions. How do we achieve that? I would say that returning to the idea of how history works through this ensemble of uh fields or areas it's up to us as socialists to act through all of these ensemble you know this throughout this ensemble rather so navara media what what do we do navara media is around changing mental conceptions relations to nature social relations but you know we were very much a media project uh and that's very valuable but it's also very valuable to be starting a worker-owned business which you know uh your, your business is to go around selling uh, renewable technology or offering to retrofit people's homes, right? That's also very valuable. Uh, mm. Joining a political party and engaging in canvassing and uh, the act of mass persuasion is also very valuable. So how how I would say we achieve this is through acting within that constellation of historical change and making the argument. And what I want the book to be about, but also building the alternative within the, within the shell of the old world, which in isolation is not enough, but it's still part of the solution. Um, I want within that FALC fully automated electric communism to be a, a pole of attraction, which is optimistic, which says, again, you know, human ingenuity is being limited rather than unleashed by capitalism. Uh, and to say that we can very much build a better world than the old one. Because I think the ideologies of you know, capitalist realism is bad. Absolutely. Neoliberalism was bad. I think it's perfectly plausible that a, a variant of deep green conservatism would be worse, you know, um, and and I, I can see people right now who may be open to left-wing ideas going down that path in 10, 20 years' time. And it's a very, for me, it's a very troubling one uh, because I think... I, I, I talking think, about kind of path to like eco-fascism? Basically. Yeah, yeah, I think the, the, deep, the deep green stuff I think is, is worrying. And, you know, the, the presumption is because they've basically forsaken any idea of class struggle or revolution, so revolution can't happen because nothing changes, but the non-reproduction of capitalism because of climate crisis becomes the surrogate for revolution. Now, I don't think that's particularly good because within that context, who suffers the most? You know, it's not the able-bodied, it's not the wealthy, it's not white people, generally speaking. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Clearly, clearly, in a world of six degrees warming where there's too much methane for any of us to breathe, it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, on the way there... Uh, certain people will do a lot worse than others. So yeah, um, that's why I want you know Falk to be the pole of attraction rather than sort of eco pessimism. Very very important. We don't go down that route. Sure. Okay. Well, thanks very much. And um, yeah, there's been plenty of stuff from the book that we haven't had a chance to touch on. So if if people are interested, then as I say, it's called Fully Automated Luxury Communism, and it's out with uh, Verso. Um, And yeah, check out Navarra Media as well if you'd like to hear more for Aaron. Thanks very much, Aaron. Thank you. Cheers. That is the end of my conversation with Aaron. Thank you very much for listening. 
If you have any questions or comments or anything else relating to this or, or anything else or something about the podcast in general, feel free to contact me on utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com. If you're not following me already, you can find me on Twitter at utopianhorizons. Uh, there's a Facebook page at facebook.com slash utopianhorizons. And as I mentioned uh, in the middle of the podcast, if you want to find the Patreon, again, it's patreon.com slash utopianhorizons. So that's the end of this episode. I'm working on a few things for future episodes at the moment. So I'll be back in the hopefully not too distant future with something new. Okay, thanks for listening. See you soon. Bye.